Ken Siegel is a former Apple ad man who worked closely with Steve Jobs for more than a dozen years. Siegel is the guy who put the eye in iMac and worked on the famous Think Different campaign. The big lesson he learned from Steve Jobs was keeping things simple. He worked this into a book about his career called Insanely Simple, which led to a very successful second career on the lecture circuit. But while he was telling people how Steve Jobs kept things uncomplicated, they'd always say, well, that's great, but what about me? How do I apply that to my company or my life? It's a good question. So Siegel went out and found 40 business folks who keep things simple. He has a new book based on those interviews called Think Simple. We talked to Siegel about some of those lessons, how Steve Jobs kept things simple, and about how Apple is doing these days without him. This episode of Kane's Corner is brought to you by TunnelBear, the simple privacy app that makes it easier to browse privately and enjoy a more open internet. Visit gettunnelbear.com to get your free TunnelBear today. My name is Leander Caney. I'm the editor and publisher of Cult of Mac, a blog about Apple, and the New York Times bestselling author of some books about technology, most recently a biography of Johnny Ive, Apple's head designer. Caney's Corner is a new weekly podcast. Every week I'll be interviewing a guest about the world of Apple. I've got some great guests lined up, including a bunch of ex-Apple staffers who will talk about their work and working with Steve Jobs. I've also got people like an iPhone case maker who'll spill the beans on the competitive and shadowy world of case making. Being first to market is worth millions of dollars, and these guys do some crazy things to get the specs of Apple's upcoming devices get the jump on the competition. I'll also talk to app makers and IT guys and recyclers. It's a big Apple world out there, and there's tons of great, fascinating stories to tell. Um, Okay, so Ken, tell me um, about your new book, Think Simple. Think Simple is actually a sequel to the first book. Whether there will be a trilogy, I have no idea. But uh, right now, yeah, the first book was all about the power of simplicity as, you know, as I focused on Steve Jobs and Apple. That's a story everybody was interested in. Based upon your, your career at Apple, right? You, you worked Correct. with Steve for... Um, he, yeah, I was his ad agency creative director for eight years on Next and four years, a little bit more than four years on Apple. And so that, um, that included all the early, uh, the Think Simple campaign... Correct. Uh, that's when Steve came back to Apple in 1997. That's why I think basically. different. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I appreciate the plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you worked with Steve very closely for um, many yeah. years. Yeah, so it's like 12 years. And then I worked on Apple on Apple's advertising for a couple of years under John Scully. I, I consulted inside Apple for another couple of years later. So I've been kind of around that world for just you know, way too many years. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, so your first book was based, and you said it was a lot easier to write, is that right? Yeah, the first book was really just based on my own experiences. So that was like six months. This book... Um, well, I should explain first what I did. And I decided that um, as I went around the world talking about the first book, I often encountered the question, okay, this is great, but how do we actually create simplicity where we work? Right, because Steve made it look very simple, didn't he? He, he did. And that's the thing about simplicity. It, it always looks too simple. <laughs> you know, you yeah. try to do it, and it, that's when you have to start being a little brutish, like Steve could be. Right, but people. So you said you you were on the on the on the on the lecture circuit for 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 several years talking about uh, your first book, and that first question people used to ask you was, yeah, it was like, okay, that's great, we get it, simplicity is good, but how do we do it? Yeah. Uh, so I thought, well, that's a good question. I should give that some thought. <laughs> so um, what I did was decide to go beyond Apple and go look around the world, find companies that were doing really interesting things that were doing that were powered by simplicity in one way or another mm-hmm. and um, and talk to the leaders of these companies. So that's what I did. I talked to over 40, yeah, over 40 of them. And they're in wildly different industries too. I've got fashion, food, finance, telecommunications, uh, all kinds of different industries. Okay. And uh, it's interesting because they all have like their own philosophy and their own belief in the power of simplicity. They describe it in different ways. But there are also some interesting common threads, and and those are things like you know when you hear from the same thing from a bunch of people, you should probably pay more attention to them. But the idea was that if you are part of any organization and you read these stories about how people have simplified or leveraged the power of simplicity, it should give you some some good ideas about what you can do in your own in your own organization or business. I see. Okay. And so did you, you managed to um, find, uh, did you boil it down to sort of, you know, nine or 10 points of... Uh... I did actually. Good guess. It was nine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and there are things, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I start with the mission because it's so 
so simple. But the mission of the of the company or the yeah, organization. Yeah, it's like you know every company seems to have one, although some of the biggest companies actually don't have one, or they they're unable to articulate it, and it's kind mm. of shocking, really. But um, most companies have a mission. Sometimes it's either uh, well stated. Uh, and exists and is promoted within the company frequently at, at events and that kind of a thing. And sometimes, like in the case of an Apple, I don't think they they ever actually say anything like, remember what we do here. I mean, it's pretty darn obvious what they do there. And if you don't get that, then you don't belong there. <laughs> so, um, But they have a mission, you know, it's to innovate and make people's lives wonderful and all that kind of stuff. So there are things like that. There's um, culture, you know, how to cultivate a, a culture of simplicity where where people who come into the company sort of learn the way they, they should behave and what, what values should guide their decisions. And then, of course, when they absorb that and new people come in, they become the, the mentors and they teach other people how to do mm -hmm. it. It's sort of a self-perpetuating thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I also talk, you know, I found these interesting stories about uh, leadership traits uh, for those who, who lead for simplicity and and how people streamline uh, and minimize and all those different things. Uh, I found an interesting story about just building websites, actually, from a couple of guys who in London who uh, have a business called Foolproof. And their whole business is looking at websites and developing websites that, that really put customers in a state of flow. And the state of flow is this thing espoused by a Hungarian philosopher, and I, I won't embarrass myself by trying to pronounce his name, mm -hmm. uh, but I think a lot of people are familiar with him. But the idea that when you're in a state of flow, you just know where you're going, you're happy with what you're doing, and you're, you're not tempted to do something else. And I think that's kind of a, a thing that goes hand in hand with simplicity. When you're, when you're doing something that's simple, you, you stay focused on it, and you're not uh, distracted, you you tend to care about what you're doing, uh, and I think simple products do that, simple communications do that, and of course simple websites do that. Yeah, yeah, and simple simplicity is a lot harder than it looks, isn't it? It, it never comes easy, really. Yeah, that's pretty much where the book starts: is that simplicity isn't simple. It's it really does take an incredible amount of work, and I think that is what um, what drove Steve Jobs batty to a degree, you know, that's when you would hear the stories about him blowing up, I think more times than not were when people were trying to make things complicated or, or getting in the way of a simple idea becoming a product. Right. And so, um, of course, you know, your first book was about Steve, but Steve, uh, uh, I guess, is the sort of patron saint over many of these things and uh, many of the points that you make in your new book as well. Yeah, that's true. And um, I had different versions of the book in my head, to be honest, uh, at one point, I thought I'd start with the whole thing about what did Steve do when he came back to Apple and then talk about what other people are doing and then talk about what you should be doing. And I ended up sort of combining the whole thing. But um, I think Steve is just amazingly good proof that even a big company can simplify. Because when he came back from exile after 11 years of, of absence, he found that he was in a big company that was complicated. And what he did to Apple... Uh, at that time is absolutely the same thing any CEO could do today if he woke up one morning and said, let's simplify this place. <laughs> is that true, though? Because, I mean, wasn't wasn't he sort of absolutely desperate and, and you know, realized that something had, you know, he had to make some very, very radical changes? Well, it's, it is true that in Steve's time, he was dealing with a company that was nearly bankrupt. Um, you know, a CEO of a company that's complicated, but actually doing fairly well, uh, wouldn't have that same kind of pressure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That um, would be a very, very, um, you know, courageous thing to do, wouldn't it? To, to rip something up the way that Steve ripped up Apple. Yeah, if you think about it, I mean, some of the things he did that people have almost forgotten about still blow me away. Like the fact that Apple was making over 20 products. And when he announced the iMac, he stood on stage that day and literally said, we're killing our entire product line. Right. <laughs> and, he, and he said, we're going to keep just two computers. It was the, uh, well, he had the iMac that day, but he had the Power Mac and the Power Book. But everything else, you know, Newton's, scanners, printers, yeah. all that stuff was just like dead. And yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the guys I talked to in the book was a good friend of mine, Tom Suter, who used to be uh, internal creative director at Apple and became the head of a design firm that Steve used quite frequently. Um, 
he talked about how uh, amazing that was <laughs> that, that uh, you know, that that, that happened um, and how Steve sort of revamped the whole marketing effort. Uh, it was quite extraordinary that he would he could do such a thing. But that was the great thing about Steve, as we all know, is it to a degree he did not care <laughs> what what had been done before and what other people thought was right. He just had this thing in his head and he followed his his personal belief. Well, he he did a, a a big thorough review of the entire company, right? And he got rid of everything that he didn't think was um, was essential, and it yeah, was boiled uh, down to a matrix of of a, uh, of the four things. It was a yeah. home and pro version of a desktop and a laptop. And what my friend uh, Tom Suter told me too, I forgot to finish that, was that not only did Steve kill kill all those existing products, but inside Apple at that time, he said there were dozens of projects that were active that were. Uh, different project, different products being developed, and Steve killed almost all of those. So he went on this this incredible tear. And a lot of the people who worked inside Apple were fairly terrified because their jobs, uh, you know, were involved with a lot of those projects. So you know, he had to deal with that. Yeah, it was. A, um, and and then one of the most important things he did was was involved was the was the first marketing campaign, right? Which is as much for um, getting the message of Apple internally to the people who were left. Correct. To refocus, was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was Think Different. And yes, it was designed not only to tell the world that Apple was alive and well, and the spirit of innovation was alive and well, uh, and that this would be the, the basis for the new products coming, which wouldn't be coming for at least six months, but it was for the people inside Apple to let them know that, that things were changing, that we were going to, you know, reignite that, that spirit of innovation inside Apple. And you know, one of the things that we used to do at the agency, uh, Chiat Day in L.A., we, there was a thing. In fact, there's a, a book, I think, was published, or at least internally, about the famous T-shirts of the past. <laughs> it was like if it made a good T-shirt, you knew you were in business. <laughs> and, um, and Think Different was a fantastic T-shirt, and the employees of Apple loved to wear it. You know, it, it sort of made them feel great that the company had a mission. And Steve told everybody inside Apple when that campaign launched that, that they had to look at what they were doing in their particular job, no matter who they were in the company, and think about thinking different. Right, a, a great, great campaign. And never mentioned a computer once. And of course, I, I was looking at one of the pictures this weekend of Muhammad Ali. Oh yeah, um, and yeah. how they uh, uh, he you know they, it was honoring all of the, all of their you know their heroes from all these different parts of life. And it, it uh, yeah spoke to very much to the the um, you know the spirit of Apple, isn't it? That sort of that that intersection of the arts and technology and yeah. And that, you know, it was a great you know, thing to be a part of. And, and uh, I was part of a team that created all that work. I would never take personal credit for it. But um, Steve loved that campaign. I mean, it's, it's not just, I'm not trying to be self-serving. <laughs> he, he truly loved it. In fact, to the point where, uh, you know, it was played, you know, year after year, that launch commercial, actually. And literally. The, one, the, the crazy ones. Yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. Literally. There's a good story about he when he first saw that he came from the, the the mixing booth with tears streaming down his cheeks. He was so moved by it. Well, wasn't exactly in a in a booth, but uh, yeah, no, he was. No, he well, was what, a, what happened then? What what did happen? Okay, well, the actual story is that he was just uh, he didn't write the commercial as some people claim, uh, but he was a really good client. So he saw many versions of it and he gave his reactions. It's, you know, this isn't working as well for me as, as some other part of it, that kind of a thing. Uh -huh. So we ended up with something, and, and we wanted Steve to be the voice of it. You've probably heard the version that has Steve speaking the words. Um, he didn't want to do that because he thought it would be a distraction if he voiced his own commercial, that people would just be debating what an egomaniac Steve was rather than listening to the words. Okay. So okay. he thought that was a bad idea. But he did agree to record it, so we did record it. Um, but then I went out and recorded a bunch of other people, uh, including Richard Dreyfus, who ended up being the voice that we used. But the, what happened was the night that we were making the final, final mix on it, and it pains me to tell the story because it makes me sound uh, too old, <laughs> but um, because we didn't have you know the facilities to do what we do today. So what we would do... Uh, we were at the sound mixing at the at the final mix place. Uh, we were in L.A. Steve was up uh, at his home near San Francisco, and every time we had a new version, we would have to send it via satellite 
and have a messenger deliver it to Steve's house. <laughs> so, How did that work then? So it got, uh, a, a, there was a copy made? Yeah, so what we did was we sent him, finally, you know, we were making a lot of little tweaks to the sound that, you know, had nothing to do with the voiceover, just, you know, final mix stuff. And uh, we ended up with, I believe, five commercials that we sent him. And so we satellite them up, they, they, they dub them onto a tape, a messenger gets in a car and drives to Steve's house. <laughs> in Palo Alto. Yeah. So we, you know, the whole process from the time we sent it, it was probably close to an hour before, you know, we'd have a conversation with Steve. So, hmm. so he'd call back and say, okay, I saw all five versions and I hate the one with me in it. Mm-hmm. I hate all these other ones. There's only one in here that's really good and that's Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. So, so we took turns trying to talk him into, uh, you know, using his voice, but he wouldn't budge on that one. Uh, and then, you know, there's a funny little mostly unknown story that if you look on YouTube, there's a video of him introducing that commercial. Uh, he's just wearing shorts. It's a morning uh, meeting, internal meeting at Apple. And he talks about the power of brand advertising and why they need to do it. And then I'd like to share this new commercial with you. Mm-hmm. And he looks very ragged, although he delivers a fantastic presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is very, very Steve. But the reason he looks so ragged is that we literally had him up till three o'clock in the morning uh, doing all those, the reviewing and discussion with us. Uh-huh. So so he, it was literally three o'clock when we hung up with him the last time, got his approval. So I don't know what time he got to sleep, but that speech was about nine o'clock in the morning at Apple. So yeah. I don't think he slept more than a couple of hours, to be honest. Right. Yeah. And he, he said uh, uh, that he was putting in, a, you know, like crazy hours in those early days, uh, uh, working really hard to try to get Apple back on its feet. Yeah, you know, in the Isaacson book, um, Steve says between Pixar and Apple, all those, all, you know, all that work was what caused his cancer. And Isaacson has a footnote there that, you know, there's no proof at all that stress can cause cancer. But Steve had that in his head. I will say that I have never understood how it was even possible for him to do what he did because he worked three days a week at Apple uh, back then in those days. Um and then two days a week at Pixar. And both companies uh, needed some serious, serious leadership, and he was providing it for both of them. Uh, hmm. I, don't, I don't know how, how one human being could possibly have done all that, but he did, and he did a pretty darn good job on both of them. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, he was actually acting as CEO of um, Apple in the early days, as well as the CEO, is that right? Because he, he renegotiated it. I remember you know, hearing that he, he did a huge review of all of the different product teams and he cut everything back and he was in, he was involved in back-to-back meetings with, you know, not only hardware and software, but because he was revamping OS 10, he was revamping all the hardware line, um, also the marketing, but then also um, running the entire operation in the background for making the product. So he was renegotiating all the contracts with all the suppliers, <laughs> closing down factories, negotiating new ones. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting when people complain about the movies, or, you know, the coverage of Steve and the general press I think one of the complaints from people who know, such as yourself, is that those stories don't really reveal all that stuff. Um, I mean, how much he did uh, and how in control of it all he was is just really, really phenomenal. Right. And it wasn't just control, right? I mean, the stories I hear um, is that he was a, you know, an important member of the team. And he could throw a fit and be scary. And his opinion counted for a lot. But he was also listening to other people, and, and he was that, a collaborator. That's very true, and and I try uh, every chance I get, I, I swat down the the belief that he was a micromanager or something like that. From what I saw as part of the advertising team, Steve wanted the most brilliant people around him, and he wanted them to do their jobs and be brilliant. He just wanted to be an active member of the process, and mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. and he enjoyed the debate that came along with it and helping to develop great ideas and the whole bit. But there were quite a few times when we would have disagreements and Steve's final comment was, well, you know what, if you believe so passionately, you guys are the experts, so I'll go with you on this one. And that was, I, I think that surprises a lot of people when they hear that because he was absolutely open to a good argument. Right. And, and and wasn't that the important part, like having a passion and having the conviction behind an idea? And if you really stuck up for it, and if you went toe to toe with him, yeah. then he would defer, right? Because then he knew that you've, you, you know, you it was a, 
you believed in it and it was probably a good idea. Yeah. Probably the best idea. Yeah, he once contacted me when he was looking for a new uh, marketing chief at Apple and he was telling me about the, uh, you know, his requirements for the job. And that was the first thing he said. He goes, you know me, I'm not looking for a yes man. I want someone who's going to have an opinion, be passionate about it and be willing to defend it. Mm-hmm. So, right. But the funny thing was, even though he said that, uh, when you were having those passionate exchanges, he could really make you feel like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and I think uh, part of his thing, though, is like, you know, if you can withstand this withering attack, then, you know, then you have a chance. Uh, but if, you know, if, if me poking holes in your argument or insulting you is going to, you know, defeat your argument, then it couldn't have been much of an argument in the first place. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, so did you find, uh, let's go back to your book. Did you find examples of um, of uh, other leaders, uh, you know, that w- w- were analogies to, to Steve and the way that they simplified their businesses? I did find uh, some interesting similarities. There's a guy in Australia, his, na- his name is John McGraw, uh, and he has uh, a chain of, of uh, real estate agencies across Australia, one of the bigger uh, networks. Uh, and he is actually written up as the Steve Jobs of real estate. <laughs> so okay. I, I thought that was interesting. So um, I found a connection to him. And he talked about his commitment to excellence. And he just said that's his only thing that he tells people. He goes, uh, you know, what we do is we list properties for sale. You know, we come up with fair prices and we find, you know, good buyers and sellers and all that kind of stuff. But he said it's all about quality. They won't, they don't handle junky properties. When they present something, it's, it's world-class photography that is, that would be at home in architectural digest. You know, he has, Mm -hmm. and he said people come into the company and he talked about culture a bit too. He said they're, they're, they're kind of surprised sometimes like, wow, I, you know, you mean John really cares if you do it this way versus that way? And he said, yeah, the answer is he absolutely cares. (laughs) You better you know, get with it and absorb these values because that's what makes this company special. So things like that were very gratifying to hear. Um, and you see, I think around the world, I mean, I'm not sure if I give Steve Jobs credit for all of it, but he certainly contributed to it. There seems to be a growing appreciation, uh, certainly amongst customers, and then, you know, companies are forced to respond to that. So I think the world has gotten better looking. <laughs> it's better designed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, someone once asked me, like, well, if, you know, if everyone simplifies, then simplicity won't be a competitive advantage anymore. And my answer to that was like, you know, really? <laughs> like, you, you think this world is ever going to be less complicated? Uh, I think there will always be opportunities for people who believe in simplicity to stand out. And so what's a good example of, uh, of a, a company you think that's, that's um, you know, really absorbed that lesson? Well, one of the more fun ones I, I talked to was Jerry Greenfield of Ben & Jerry's, the founder, co-founder of the company, because I've been eating his ice cream long enough. And, <laughs> right, um, yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, and his story had some interesting points in it, too. In fact, I use him early in the book to make the point that really when we talk about simplicity, we're, we're not talking about simplicity. We're talking about the perception of simplicity, which is a very different thing. As long as someone goes away from an experience feeling that it was simple, they don't really care how hard it was for you to do. We're talking about simplicity being difficult to to attain. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, iPhone's easy to use, but it certainly wasn't easy to build. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, it's extremely complicated, isn't it? And and to make it easy to use. And, And how many websites do you go to that feel so refreshingly simple? I can guarantee you there were months of arguments and passionate debate before it was finally put up, you know. Um, nothing easy, nothing simple really is simple to do. So so Jerry made the point that um, what Ben and Jerry's did was actually really difficult. There were no machines in the world that could make ice cream with these big chunks in it. He said there were, there were ice cream was, was creamy and you could put little tiny things in it, but the machinery wouldn't support it. So they actually had to, you know, as they're, they had this little tiny, you know, store in, in Vermont, uh, a converted gas station, <laughs> and hmm. they were mixing ice cream in the back room because there were no machines to do it. Mm-hmm. And their ice cream was getting more popular, but they couldn't make enough of it, and they couldn't expand beyond this cold place, you know, which only really allowed them to sell ice cream for half a year. 
So they, they actually had to develop the machines and do all that stuff and, and create this image that, that seems simple and fun, but is anything but simple to actually do. Um, and their challenge, by the way, was as they, they're a global brand now. They were bought by Unilever, but they set things up in such a way that the, what the company stands for, which is not just ice cream, it's social change and, and participating in, in debate, trying to change the world for the better. You know, that's sort of written into, the, it was institutionalized um, by being written into the agreement with Unilever. Uh, and they have sort of like a, a board that is that reports to both Unilever and Ben and & Jerry's and has independence. And they sort of ensured that the company would always stand for what it stands for so that the people who worked for Ben & Jerry's weren't thinking, we're, you know, we're just churning out ice cream. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're actually trying to change the world here, and that really is the essence of that company. And that was one of the other points that you you, you found, right, in in your interviews, that that having a mission or a clear um, idea for an organization or a company was 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 very very important. Yeah, you know, it's all about guidelines, I think, because let's see, I'm thinking of um, Kip Tyndall, who is the uh, CEO of the Container Store. I spent time with him, and he uh, he's very big on these foundation principles that guide that company. And that's an example of a company, unlike Apple, that they're, they're constantly putting these principles in people's faces. But the reason he does it is that he doesn't want people to have a boss looking over their shoulder all the time. He thinks that if people really understand what the company is all about, that they embrace the mission, um, then they can use they can create the results any way they feel appropriate. It's up to them. They can be creative about that, but they're trying to achieve the result that is very well, very well stated in the mission, basically. You know, it's about customer service and, and, and giving people more than they expect. And uh, you got me now. I can't remember exactly what they were, but they were, they were these guidelines for behavior, basically. And a, a similar thing happened to Charles Schwab. I talked to the former CEO there. They, they put together a similar set of values. And, and the idea was always that, you know, you don't want people feeling like there's somebody looking over my shoulder and I'm going to get in trouble if I don't do this or that. It's all about giving people these guidelines. So the way they behave, the decisions they make will be consistent with what we believe this company should be. And I think with in my experience with Apple, by the way, that thing about simplicity, it wasn't like anyone... It, talked about it like every day or anything like that. It was just known, you know? So when we were putting things together for Steve or I was with people inside Apple who were preparing a presentation for Steve that he would perform at one of the product intros at Macworld or something, people would critique each other and say, eh, you know, that's feeling a little complicated. Like your iPhoto demo demo there has 20 photos on the shelf there. And, you know, probably be better if you only had like five or six. And Mm -hmm. you're just going to, bring some stuff into here that you don't need to. And um, so people start critiquing each other and helping each other, you know, fulfill this mission of making things simpler. And I think that's what values and, uh, you know, values create the culture and culture supports the mission. It's all sort of tied together. But I think in the in the case of those things, it's really about creating these guidelines, or you might even say guardrails, you know, so people don't veer off the path <laughs> and you you need to supervise them less to achieve the same result and stay focused right and um you, i mean you gave an example earlier of um uh, the australian telco company that yes. was um listening to to its own workers yet to try to um uh, improve its uh, its position yes they empowered the people who were on the front line they were uh, the people who were actually going into homes and, and installing equipment or fixing equipment and the people who were in the stores dealing with customers, they realized that those people's experience was was completely critical to overcoming the problems they were facing with customer, you know, there was bad customer service out there. That was the perception. So they brought these people to the table and they, they had a lot of meetings with um they brought this, the senior management in, into these teams. They, they actually put the executive team of Telstra on the phone uh, answering complaints from customers so they would understand <laughs> exactly what these people were experiencing. And mm-hmm. it was this whole renaissance at that company to 
to appreciate customer service. And as uh, this man I talked to named Robert Nason described, it was all about simplicity as a vehicle <laughs> to deliver a service that people would actually appreciate. And they also um, sort of took a, a, a leaf out of um, Apple's book, is that right? Because they, they were also listening to the people in the front line, their, their customer service reps, and trying to um, understand what their problems were, which gave them insight into the problems of the company. And yes. the analogy was um, when Steve came back, finding there was a lot of great talent inside the company, but they weren't empowered. A good example being Johnny Ive. Exactly. So I do think, uh, you know, that is one of the points I make that... Um, Oftentimes, you've got these issues, and the solution to your problem may be right there inside the building. It's just a question of opening your eyes and looking at what you have. So as we all know, Johnny Ive was about ready to walk, and Steve Jobs had to sort of talk him into staying and tell him that things were going to be different. And that, by the way, slightly off topic, but uh, can you imagine that? (laughs) It's like... I don't know who I would believe, you know, if I'm fed up with the company and someone says, oh, just give me a chance. We're going to change everything when you see it looking kind of bleak. Uh, <laughs> right. So it's a good thing that Johnny fell for it because uh, it was it did all right for his career and for Steve's. Well, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, they were in a, in a design studio off campus. Yeah. And he yeah. was going to go over there and fire him. And he, and he saw all of these prototypes, of these crazy uh, looking um, machines that were made in see-through plastic and they put a couple on the market the e-mate and the newton right but they really hadn't you know there was a lot more crazier stuff in the uh in the design studio that that hadn't seen the light of day and yeah. that's really what fired up steve's imagination so uh, he hadn't seen anything like it either had he and and, and uh, yeah. it was perfectly complimentary i think it'd be really fun maybe one day in the future we all will be you know wearing eye implants or something and we record everything that ever goes on but how fascinating it would be to have been in the to have heard those conversations and how fascinating it would have been to have been in the previous one between Johnny Ive and Gil Emilio when they were debating <laughs> what they should do and and those the executives at Apple were swatting down all those ideas it, it yeah yeah it would be amazing to watch well the 20th anniversary Mac is a good example of that right because it, it was yeah. um, it's a precursor to the iMac it's an all-in-one but they managed to like completely overprice it and, and turn it into this high limited edition uh, machine it was the complete opposite of jobs instinct which is to make it yeah. um, low cost and playful and um, as accessible as possible yeah you have to wonder if behind the scenes the executive team might have been thinking like well, Let's throw those guys a bone and let them let them have their little toy. <laughs> well, uh, Rob Bruno, who set up yeah. the design studio, you know, told me that they they you know they just weren't empowered. They they didn't have a voice. They were sort of you know they 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 had always been treated as the people at the last of the line who took the what the engineers the box the engineers put together and then they were supposed to make it look pretty. Yep. Um, and really, what they should have done, which is what Jobs did, which is which is completely switch that and start from the other end and um, try to well. It wasn't just a question of making a box and then filling it with electronics, but it was taking a more integrated approach. Yeah. What, what are the good examples of, of companies that, that have um, embraced simplicity? I, there's a really interesting one in South Korea. I, I did get around. <laughs> and um, there's a company, it's a, one of the companies of Hyundai Group. It's, it's a, a division of Hyundai Motors called Hyundai Card. And Hyundai Card is a credit card. And they were created to basically serve the customers who bought a car from the company. Uh, But they handled other stuff too. And they were basically losing over a billion dollars a year. And they talked this guy who had been managing one of their plants in Mexico, I think it was, to transfer over to Seoul. And he was a South Korean and take over the company as a CEO. And he's a fascinating guy. His name is Ted Chung. And if you Google him, there are tons of articles written about this guy. He's like a rock star in, in South Korea because he took this this horribly failing credit card company and turned it into this uh, very lifestyle-oriented premium credit card. Uh, again, a, a similarity to Steve Jobs, and he's a huge fan of Steve Jobs. What they do with their cards, like they, he made design, like this big part of it. And I was like, what do you mean? Like design, you're a credit card company. What do you care about design? And it was like, no, it's, it's what we do here. They have like this design part of their building. They have a design library that is actually bigger than the design library inside Apple. I was shocked. 
and um, like they they when they design their credit cards and they have these interesting features that you you know we don't need to get in now trust me they're interesting products but they they're beautifully designed like when people who have a credit card from Hyundai card travel outside the country I was told that when they like go to the US and try to buy something oftentimes the salesperson will look at the card and say what is this <laughs> it's like no, <laughs> right. it's a credit card trust me it's like got very little on it it's very minimalist um, and when they send them to people, they send in beautiful packaging, just like Apple does. And they spend all this money to create this, like, you know, we care about making a premium product and making your life simpler and easier and better. Huh. Um, and they, you know, they sponsor concerts, you know, Paul McCartney and Lady Gaga and stuff like that. They're, they do big things. And they've gone from losing a billion dollars a year to, to having a profit over a billion dollars a year. Uh, in in ten years' time, so and and he's redone the office. Ted has uh, so that they have like uh, the lobby and the cafeteria and the, all these things are like designed by famous designers. Like you just, I wanted to work there when I walked around the place. <laughs> Was that nice? So it sounds um, like a, a lot of elements that Apple applied or Steve Jobs applied as well. You know, yeah, like, and like I say, he talked about those uh, a lot too, and he talked about that in comparison to Samsung. So maybe it's an interesting thing to chat about for a second here. He said that he got into this whole conversation about coolness, and I talk about it in this new book where he said, you know, some people think it's superficial. Uh, coolness is not superficial. It's kind of like it comes from deep inside the company, who you are. And he said, Apple is cool and they make cool products because of what they believe. It's, you know, and you see what they believe in their stores and in the products and the packaging and all that stuff um, and in their history. He said, whereas Samsung, um, he talked about having visited a Samsung store that had just opened in New York City during one of his visits. And he was sort of astounded that it was just like, how much cool stuff can we cram into a room to try to convince people we're cool? But it really, it told him nothing about the company. And he said, you know, everything that Apple does consistently reinforces that brand image. Whereas uh, <laughs> what he saw in Samsung was very shallow and, and didn't convince him of anything. And he found out that the company that had designed it uh, the Samsung store had, was based in London, and he was in London some months later and actually visited that very design studio and, and talking to the people there found that the Samsung people had actually never participated in the design. They huh. basically said, here's a budget, make something cool. I see. <laughs> so, um, and as we know, that's not the way it works at Apple, I, you know, whether Johnny is involved deeply in, in such things. Um, you right. Know, so yeah. No. No wonder they got the um, the the uh, the outcome. Uh, I like that because you know they were negligent, right? They weren't paying attention. Yeah. 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 Uh, didn't Steve famously say that um, uh, his quote about cool was like trying to watch Michael Dell dance? Yeah. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> yeah. It's just you can't you can't fake it, and you know you, uh, it has to be sort of you know part of the part of the DNA of the of the place. Yeah. So I miss that about Steve too. Is you know working with other you know corporate leaders i mean steve it was he was so irreverent that way and unafraid to say things that would have gotten other people in trouble uh you know you don't often see the guy who makes the decisions having that kind of brashness about him and it really was inspiring to be around this episode of canis corner is supported by tunnel bear an award-winning service that gives you fast and private access to the internet TunnelBear is a virtual private network, or VPN, that guards your privacy and security while online. A VPN is a must-have for any public internet usage. If you log on at a coffee shop or the airport, it's crazy to do it without a VPN. TunnelBear works on all your devices, computers, tablets, and phones. It's by far the easiest to use and best designed VPN I've encountered. It's so easy to use, my mom, who's in her mid-70s, routinely uses it to watch TV in the UK. She lives here in San Francisco, and she uses it to get a UK IP address, which allows her to watch UK TV shows that are blocked over here. It's not just the UK, you can browse like you're in the United States, or Germany, Japan, India, or dozens of other countries. It's dead, dead easy to use and super secure. Nothing is logged. It's all super private. TunnelBear's been used by more than 10 million people. I've been a paying subscriber for a couple of years, and my mom and brother too. Go to gettunnelbear.com, that's gettunnelbear.com, and create a free trial account. If you use that URL, TunnelBear will know that we sent you. 
Again, it's gettunnelbear.com. So thanks to Tunnelbear for supporting this episode of Kane's Corner. How do you feel about Apple now? Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I recently wrote an article for The Guardian that uh, they immediately slapped a clickbait headline onto that totally <laughs> did not represent my point of view. <laughs> what was the clickbait uh, headline? What did it say? It said uh, how Apple lost its simplicity or something like that. You know, Steve, it, it had two parts to it. They were both like basically saying it was a done deal. Apple was not simple anymore. How Apple lost it, you know, that kind of a thing. And that's not what I wrote. I, I wrote what I thought was a fairly thoughtful piece about uh, well, clearly there are some things they need to be concerned about today. But I think just as clearly Apple deeply believes in simplicity. They're just having a little trouble you know, with quality control. And, and some of the things that they're accused of doing are not a problem at all. You know, like there are people who, who think having three models of iPhones is craziness. And it's like, well, you know, there was one successful iPod and suddenly there were four of them and Steve did that and they were all for different kinds of people. So <laughs> I think iPhone is exactly the same way. You want a small one, you want a big one. That so makes... nothing wrong with product line extension. No, and you know, you want a big iPad, you want a small iPad. I think those things are logical. Apple deals with a you know huge market around the world that is diversifying every day. People have different needs. So either you let them, like in the case of the iPhone, when Apple wasn't making a bigger one, they were basically sending them to Samsung. So either you watch your customers go away or you give them what they want. You know, you don't have to give them 10 models, but three is really not that complicated. <laughs> so I don't, I don't quite buy that that's complicated. But I do buy the criticism of like the naming. You could get into that. I mean, I've always had this thing about the S models. I think that's really silly to basically send the message publicly every other year that you didn't do as much to your phone as Samsung did to theirs. You know, you're basically saying it's an off year when, in fact, some of the biggest features iPhone ever introduced huh. happen in S models. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, they, they, yeah, exactly. They didn't they introduce that. You know, they've done all sorts of uh, stuff yeah. in the S, S Siri year. and Touch ID, which I think is probably the biggest cool, wonderful thing that Apple ever did was in an S year. So but slapping an S name on it, you think, sort of downplays it. Yeah, and if you read this last year in particular, I don't know who started it, but somebody came up with with the phrase the TikTok method of introducing these products that this is a tick year and the other is a talk year and apple does this every other year they do like the big changes and then the s years are the smaller changes and it's like no they're not smaller <laughs> they're great changes but just because they didn't change the body shape doesn't mean you couldn't have a revolution inside the the phone so, so what should they do well, I think one thing they could do, well, just to actually finish that thought, so you've got a, an S and then you've got an S plus, which isn't terrible. Um, but now the SE, it isn't a six, it's just an SE. So, um, and, and why SE? Phil Schiller apparently explained somewhere that that stood for special edition, like the SEs in days of old with the Mac SE or whatever. Um, you know, I guess I would question why you need two letters. You know, you, if you have an S you know, you know, they had a five C. <laughs> I don't know why it needs two letters. And and then you start to get into all these letters and numbers. So I read somewhere and I probably would go along with this. So why don't they just have an iPhone, an iPhone plus and an iPhone mini say, just to give the, uh, you know, the smaller one a name. <laughs> and then you do what you do with your computers. You've got parentheses that say 2015 model or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. But, <laughs> but, you're getting people referring to these things with all these letters and numbers, and it just seems, you know, contrary to the spirit of simplicity. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they could take the same conventions they use for the computers and for the, for the yeah. iPads. So. I mean, I do know that part of the problem is that they've been selling the previous year's model, so you can go out and you can buy the 6S or you can buy the, the 6. But I suppose you could say the same thing with the, the years if you really had to. Um, I just think you're you're kind of going down that path, and the SE is the one that's the more perplexing. I think is why do, you know why couldn't they have just given that? What well, is like I say it's it's conspicuous in not having a number attached to it. So when the iPhone seven comes out, will there be a seven, a seven plus, and a what a seven SE or just you know <laughs> yeah. it's because the E the SE came out between years. I guess they feel, let's just call it an SE, and maybe it will be a 7SE, but, you know, a little messy. Right. And how do you feel about some of the 
um, you know, well, I guess the, the Apple Watch is the biggest one that, that's come out, the biggest mm-hmm. new product platform. How do you feel about the, the, the watch? Well, one of the criticisms is that there are way too many models, that kind of thing. I don't buy that at all. I think Steve was very open about treating new products as new products and studying the category and doing what really needed to be done in that category. And I don't think anyone can make the claim that watches are not fashion. You know, you go into any department store and you'll see hundreds of watches. And that's how people shop for watches traditionally. So I don't want to wear the same watch that everyone else is wearing. I I do want to have some individuality. So I think they were just being smart by hiring fashion people and, and creating a fashion product. I do think once you understand the interface, it's actually pretty simple. But the one thing I can never get past every time I ever use it are all those tiny icons if you want to find uh, (laughs) an app. And I don't know why they wouldn't have just put like, you know, a grid of, you know, three by three grid of icons and you could thumb through, you know, screens if you wanted to uh, that could make them bigger because I can't even hit the right one when I'm when I see it in that, you know, in that array of, of apps. It's difficult and and. My eyes aren't that good. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I never use it. You're right. It's a moving target. Yeah. I, I wonder whether they wouldn't be better suited to a, a bigger screen, you know, like an iPad or, or an iPhone. I mean, kind of cool to, to, to have a, something as fluid as that. Yeah, it might be. With. But, but yeah, I don't know. You're probably yeah. right. It, it, a simple grid, even if it is kind of, you know, it's not as exciting as it, as it once was. Well, but, and that, that's a very good point, because I think that's exactly why they did it. They were looking to do something that had this fluidity to it and looked cooler and different and the whole bit. However, I would say, you know, you could go all the way back to that horrible hockey puck mouse that Apple made in the original iMac. Um, I think that was the same kind of operating theory. Let's do something really different when it got slammed for being, uh, you know, form and not function. Uh-huh, um, right. and, and I think when form defeats function, that's a bad thing. And I think Apple has had some of these lapses in its history where, where that has happened. Well, right, but it hasn't always done this, and this is what makes the company interesting. Is because you know they experiment and they do take chances and they they do things that are that are really um, you know that that aren't uh, the, the most obvious and um, the, the the safest thing to do. I was gonna say I don't have the sense of alarm that some people do, but it is somewhat disturbing that certain things have come out as products like uh, like Apple Music that gets pretty universally slammed for being far more complicated than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would think that the company that, that loves simplicity and creates products that people fall in love with because they're simple would have seen that before they introduced it. So that kind of thing is a, a bit worrying. But again, in context, Apple is vastly simpler than anyone else out there. And and. I can see people expressing a concern, and I express the concern, but I don't think Apple has lost sight of simplicity. If you listen to Tim Cook or Johnny Ive speak, that's what they talk about. I think clearly that is you know, value number one at the company, but that makes you wonder a little bit about quality control and, and things that have, that have gone through uh, in recent years. Not the end of the world, but but concerning to to those of us who who love Apple simplicity. It sounded almost like you kind of came close to saying, you know, maybe these things would have happened under Steve's watch. I, I kind of avoid doing the you know Steve would never have done this thing because I know full well that Steve did do things like that, or he he presided over some things that were pretty nasty, like the you know the whole mobile me thing and. You know the multiple. You know he he expanded product lines when he thought it was necessary, uh, and he you know he's the guy who came up who who started the S thing with the iPhones that I don't think is uh-huh. a very good idea. So it's hard to say that Steve wouldn't have done certain things. I, I just think it's this this value that has been so deeply entrenched in Apple. This this love of simplicity, you know, was always there, and I believe mm-hmm. is still there. But I do think. It's it's hit a few snags, uh-huh, uh-huh. put it that way. But it wasn't it always like that <laughs> so, though. I mean, you know, yeah. OS ten was was is is by necess- necessary complex. Yeah. And iTunes, I think, is one of the biggest bloated piece of software on the planet. Yeah, Although, you know, I think that that is true, and I think I think Apple's always had that parts. But so I think this is 
you know, since Steve passed away, I think it has given a lot more people license to say it's different now, even if it isn't different now. So, you know, certain things may in fact, you know, have deteriorated to a degree, but not nearly as much as a lot of people would have you believe, I think. You know, I think, I think Steve's passing was an opportunity for a lot of detractors to say things that aren't true. It's funny, you know, the, the, the narrative around Apple still is that the company is, you know, just a, a couple of steps away from disaster. Um, this la- that last quarter where the um, the amazing mm. growth of the iPhone finally um, yeah. uh, s- uh, sort of stopped. I mean, you know, it was still one of the biggest um, quarters in corporate history of any company. They made more money than any company has ever made, and yet it's this sort of it's a it's a it's a ring of the the death knell, the death bell. You know, it's Apple's uh, finally going to fail. Yeah. It is kind of amazing, I have to say that uh, we've seen it for what like. 20 years now or something since the since the time Apple started to make its comeback, you know, with the iMac, that there have always been these people out there who think it can't last forever and, and nothing does last forever. So one day that will be right, I'm sure. But is that day upon us? I no, think no, not. No, but it's been predicted since Steve has yeah, uh, passed away. You know, it, um, yeah. How, one more thing. How do you feel about Apple's advertising these days? Well, actually... Before I get into that, you hit on a, a very juicy topic there, too. Um, and that is like, you know, Tim Cook versus Steve Jobs. I think there is something there in that previously Apple had a CEO who was the visionary, the founder, the the driver of, of new products and all that stuff. And Tim Cook isn't that, and he knows he's not that. So he surrounds himself with people who he trusts. Um, but the, the net effect of that is different, you know. And I think everyone does need to acknowledge that Apple can't be the same without Steve. The question mm-hmm. is, how great can it be? Because if you spread Steve's job around to three or four people, there are three or four different people who won't agree on everything. So it, you know, the nature of that is just, just very different. I find myself fantasizing that Apple buys Tesla and makes Elon Musk the head of <laughs> <Okay>. everything. <laughs> so then there's a guy there who actually is known to be a visionary, and he's got all these cool electric car things going on. Plus, he's got Apple. So, how okay. bad could that be? Do you think it might not turn out though, like uh, the kind no. of Tony Fidel thing at, uh, you know, at Nest? No, that's true though. You never Although, know. Although I don't think yeah. he has a very different personality. Um, yeah, you know, when I saw Musk present the new car a few weeks ago, to be honest, it was the first time I'd ever seen him do a, an event, and I wasn't terribly impressed at first. I thought he was a little uncomfortable and not you know, fantastic speaker. But by the time it was done, I found him quite charming. Um, and I realized that that's exactly the way I felt about Steve Jobs, to be mm-hmm. honest, back at the beginning. You know, he wasn't a trained speaker. He didn't get up there and stand straight and enunciate and do all that kind of stuff, you know. He was just himself, and he was he loved the stuff he presented, and that came across. And um, I, I think, you know, being natural like that, it, you know, makes for a great leader. And, and I think... Tim, unfortunately, doesn't have that kind of presentation charisma. You know, no matter how passionate he tries to be, it sounds a bit more like he was practicing his speech as yeah. opposed to he really feels it. Well, their, their product presentations, for sure, the um, the keynotes um, have been over-rehearsed and, and pretty wooden and awkward and, yeah. and bad jokes and... Um, yeah, and, and the Apple Music one, you know, it, I guess that was that sort of was an indicator of where the product was going. But that that one was really yeah. really awful. And 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 that, by the way, I don't play the "What Would Steve Jobs Do" game very often. But there, I thought Steve would never have allowed that presentation to have gone mm-hmm. that way. That was just long and rambling, and and it just didn't make you lust after right. the product. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure they were trying, uh, uh, you know, I think they've been trying to evolve it, haven't they, to, to sort of, to fit the, cap, the the personalities of of the presenters and try to make it more of a, the yeah. Tim, you know, Tim Cook era. I like Tim Cook's interviews. I mean, I think he's given yeah. some good TV interviews and he seems very at ease. He's, he's, he's a lot more natural now than he was at the beginning. Um, mm. And um, I think he's given some good interviews. I think he's done some really great things um, with um, protection of privacy, with the fight with the FBI, but also coming out for, for gay and uh, transgender rights and, um, you mm-hmm. know, really sort of spoken up and, I, and made Apple a lot more activist, you know, and, and, and given it a political voice, which Steve yeah. never did during his time there. Um, 
And I think those are important things, you know, if you look at what, what, what this big cultural change, and I, a lot of that, I think, has been driven by Cook's leadership there. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I think Tim is a, you know, very smart guy. And, you know, nobody should ever forget the fact that he was handpicked by Steve. Steve had that kind of confidence in him because he knew how smart he was and how good he was at, at running the company. Um, it's just that vision thing that you kind of, you want to see Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or someone who really sort of stands for for uh, exciting vision of the way yeah, it could yeah, yeah. be. Well, I think, you know, we, you know I'm hoping that uh, they've got some stuff behind the scenes that we'll see. Um, you know, the, the rumored yeah. car project is is super um, intriguing. Um, but mm. just, yeah, yeah. yeah and I just was down at the new Apple store in San Francisco, the one on Union Square. And, you know, if there's, oh, that's yeah. a product, right? And it's beautiful. It's an amazing piece of... Um, of engineering um, and, uh, and and architecture and has all these cool innovative features and mm. it's still very, you know fairly simple it's it's beautifully laid out um, but it's very yeah. different from the stores they opened originally I'm not trying to plug the book again here but uh, a major part of the book was Ron Johnson who gave me a lot of his time because I know him from my time you know working on various projects and um, he was fantastic about the uh, telling me about the very beginnings of the Apple store and and the the part that simplicity played in that and uh about the initial discussions with steve about the size of the store and the nature of the store and all that kind of stuff and and you know his point his his thing about simplicity was that they came up with this mission statement with just two words really was enhanced mm -hmm. lives and everything they did Every decision they made had to be consistent with that. Not sell. It wasn't sell more products. Correct. And, and, you know, when it came to hiring people, you had to find people who actually wanted to, to do that, to help customers. And, and they thought even, you know, the genius bar that Ron is credited with coming up with that, um, you know, he said, you wouldn't want to work in the repair department, but you'd love to be a genius, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> right. it was enhancing the lives of the people who worked at the store. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, the vision thing is, isn't that a good example of the stores? Because um, they um, worked on a prototype in secret in a warehouse near near the Apple HQ. And they scrapped their first um, uh, version, which was kind of ended up like Best Buy, I think, didn't it? They had, you know, shelves full of products. And they realized that it should be organized completely differently around this idea of the digital hub. And that there should be different areas for different parts of people's lives. And, you know, so uh, isn't that an example of Steve not, you know, um, he was mad about that, didn't he? When Ron suggested they had to like tear it all down and begin again, um, but soon came around to realize that he was right, and and said afterwards that this was true of almost all their major products that they they would get, go down a certain path and then they would realize that they um, they were wrong and there was a better way to do it. Yeah. And then in in scrapping it, they would end up with something much better. Yeah, you know, sometimes Steve would have no problems whatsoever about pulling a large amount of money that had already been spent because he thought it was the right thing to do. There was one time in particular, I remember, that we were doing an education campaign, three commercials that were going into production. Um, and I thought they were really interesting and good. And it, they were going into production on a Monday morning and Sunday night, Steve called to say that he thought we were making a mistake that maybe we should uh, invest in another approach. Um, and, and he pulled the plug on it. Like I say, it was a million dollars down the tubes, but Steve did not really make his decisions based on money. It was always about mm -hmm. what he thought was the right thing to do, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, so I, you know, our campaign, by the way, if you're curious, was about, um, it was kind of like real life campaigns uh, behind the scenes when schools were choosing what system to go with and and they were about to use, choose Macs, but someone spoke up that they could get a much better deal on PCs, and they would save mm -hmm. a ton of money. And this teacher mm -hmm. gives this impassioned little speech, you know, 10-second speech, <laughs> about, like, are you crazy, <laughs> basically? It's like, you're going you're, you're, you're to bet the kid's future because, you know, you're going to save a few bucks. I mean, what's more important, our kid's education or this money you're saving? So this commercial, mm. what was wrong with it? What, what, what didn't Steve well, like about it? I think he just started thinking that maybe running a major television campaign for education was not the way to go, uh, and that we should spend the money more directly on the you know the people who are out there talking to the schools and printed pieces, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was it would have been kind of controversial and and interesting, and that's why he liked it in the first place. But uh, mm -hmm. he yep. just changed his mind. Okay, well. Um, 
I think we're running out of time. I feel bad because, uh, uh, you know, I want to plug the book, but I want to talk about Apple too. To be honest, if I was just some guy who wrote a book about, you know, everyone, hey, be simple. Uh, I don't think it would be nearly as compelling as coming from someone who had the experience with Apple and Steve Jobs. So I think it's just natural. People want to talk about Steve uh, and Apple and what it was like and what it's like today and all that kind of stuff. But I think in all that, there's still this great lesson for any company or any organization that wants to do better. Because I think being simpler, you know, Apple certainly you know, proved to the world that that can have an amazing upside to it. And people all around the world are finding the same thing. So, Yeah, I think we've definitely seen in the last few years, you know, um, a, a huge improvement in things like design and, uh, you know, product packaging, product presentation, even just sort of the, the, the purpose of products. I think, you know, th- th- there has been a simplicity movement, I think you see in a larger commercial world, which I think has definitely been, you know, the influence of Apple. Hmm. All right, Ken. Well, I appreciate the time. Oh, my and, pleasure. Um, I wish you the best of luck with the book. Uh, I'm sure it's going to do well. You've got a great publisher. That's right. You've been there. Um, <laughs> right. And you've been exactly where I am the day before publishing. It's, um, I don't know. I have a thin skin. I mean, an emotionally frail person. And if I read someone saying something bad, it'll affect the way I sleep. <laughs> okay. Okay. So. Well, yeah, I, that's something you've got to, um, to try to yeah. get a rhino skin about. Yeah. Okay, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. I'd like to thank Kang Siegel for his time. Ken's book, Think Simple, How Smart Leaders Defeat Complexity, is out on Tuesday, June 7th, and you can find it at all good bookstores. There's more information at Ken's site, kensegel.com, K-E-N-S-E-G-A-L-L.com, and I'll throw some links into the show notes on, uh, on cultofmac.com. This is the first episode of Kane's Corner. New episodes come out every week. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating on iTunes. Five stars helps a lot, and thumbs up in uh, apps like Overcast. Talking to cultofmac.com, that's a good place to get all your Apple news, reviews, and how-tos. Follow us on Twitter, at Cult of Mac, and Facebook. It's uh, Facebook slash Cult of Mac. See you next week.